Hello and welcome to Beth Takoon and the Spiritual Seasons series. In this group of teachings, we are studying each Torah portion in the light of the pattern of salvation we can see in the overall calendar. This week we are in Parsha Re'eh from near the end of Deuteronomy 11 to near the end of chapter 16. Re'eh means see. In the opening passage, Moses says to Israel, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. It is in Parsha Re'eh that Moses begins his detailed recitation of the Torah's commandments. You know, we've had the Ten Commandments uh, previously. Uh, we've had the Shema. Here Moses is now going to dive into um, all the different uh, categories of commandments and, and their details. He's going to start doing that in this portion. So as we summarize the various topics in the portion, I want to bring out the salvation pattern, what I'm calling the salvation pattern that we can see here. And so it would probably be easier to follow by looking at the notes for this section. And so I'll put a link to an outline below the video. Well, I keep saying that the pattern of salvation or the salvation pattern is everywhere in creation on every level of both the Bible and the world. The more we zoom in, we continue to see the same shape of salvation, right? Like a fractal. And this includes on the level of any given Torah portion. We should be able to see this pattern on, any, on the level of any given Torah portion. Although, obviously, sometimes it's easier to bring that out than um, in other portions. Well, in the same way as we zoom out to the level of a whole book, of the Bible, or a whole section of the Bible, uh, the prophets, for example, or even if we go further to the whole Bible in general, we see the same general pattern from the beginning of that section to the end. And this must be so because everything in creation is made through Yeshua. It's all made through the same it's all made through the same instrument, we could say. It's all made through um, the same word, which is Yeshua. And so all of it bears the mark of the one through whom it is made. And his name means salvation of God, Yeshua. We should be able to see that everywhere we look, salvation. Well, we can trace this salvation pattern in different ways. So here, today, I want to do so through the progression of spirit, soul, and body. How we can see at the beginning of this portion, spirit, in the middle, soul, and at the end, body. Um, it's a movement from the intangible to the tangible, or from the invisible to the visible, through the topics that are addressed over the course of the portion. So by the end of salvation, God has helped us to fashion holy physical vessels, vessels made of the stuff of earth that are purged and pure and that are then used for spiritual purposes. That's kind of what we're aiming for in the latter stages 
of salvation. And so the salvation pattern moves from God focusing on doing a primarily spiritual work in our lives to God helping us to truly master the physical and put it to use for good. The filling of the physical with the Spirit of God, it becomes like a home for him and a vessel and a tool for him to indwell and to do work through. And so again, in the process of salvation, we will see this general movement from spiritual to physical, from light to darkness is another way to talk about it. Um, A darkness where we become the light as the Spirit burns up our physical resources, like a candle, let's say, the candles of Hanukkah, for example. We become the light in the dark place. So we ask what we see at the beginning of this portion that speaks to us of a particularly spiritual and intangible focus. How do we see the spiritual side in particular addressed here at the beginning topic? So um, the beginning of walking with God comes with the choice to follow him, the choice to make him our God, our our God who is uh, the sole object of our worship and service, right? We choose him. We say, we will have no other God except you, and everything we do is for you. You are the object of our service. So the end verses of chapter 11, which is where Deuteronomy 11, which is where our portion begins, put forward this very decision to choose God by means of choosing to obey the commandments or not. It is shown to us as a life or death decision at the beginning of this portion, a blessing or a curse. Choosing God and experiencing new life, rebirth, is the beginning of our salvation journey. And so after this sort of stark choice, you know, I'm putting before you today blessing and curse, we come to chapter 12, And there, Israel is told the proper way to worship God. Moses says that when they get into the land, they are to tear down the pagan worship places of the Canaanites. If they want to worship God by bringing a sacrificial offering, for example, they can only do that at the one special place that he will choose. Chapter 12 ends with a further warning against falling into the trap of idolatry, right? So at the beginning, tear down their worship places. You can only um, bring a sacrifice at the place I will choose. And whatever you do, don't fall into idolatry. So in other words, we can say the portion opens in chapter 11 and 12 by talking about one, choosing God, and two, proper worship of God. And worship is first and foremost a function of the spirit, as Grant would often tell us. Spiritual at the beginning. As we move forward into the portion, we move into the area of the soul, the bridge region between the spirit and the flesh, right? The the soul has both spiritual and physical qualities to it. And we all, Grant would often say 
the mind, will, and emotions for the soul. And um, so here we're particularly looking for this blend of spiritual and physical, especially expressed through the human intellect, through the emotions, and the animal drives. And so neshama, ruach, and nefesh, parts of the soul. Other important symbols of this middle area are the word, the communication of the word of God, both orally and in writing. We consistently see that in this middle area. For example, Shavuot is the middle of the three pilgrimage, Hoed Modim, the receiving of the Torah. Um, And so along with that comes the idea of learning. Learning is important in this part. And education, learning God's holiness, right? He's a holy God, and we have to learn about that. And learning his ways, how we are to be holy as well. Well, what do we see then as we move forward in our portion? The subject of the first half of chapter 13 is the test of one who says they're a prophet. How to determine if that person um, who is claiming to be speaking the word of God is a false teacher or a true teacher of God. And so we can see the connection here to the idea of the word spoken forth through the prophet, the word of God, and to the idea of teaching and the idea of a false teacher. The prophet purports to have a special spiritual connection to God that allows him to bring the word of the Lord to the people. He or she is the vessel through which God communicates his word to the people. Well, the second half, so the first half, this testing of the purported prophet of God, in the second half of chapter 13, uh, we're given instructions for what to do with a city that has been led astray, a city that has wandered into idolatry. If it is determined, and it says you have to really thoroughly search the matter out, but if it's determined that indeed this has happened, this city has fallen sway and has fallen into idolatry, then the inhabitants and the cattle of the city are to be killed, and all the physical spoil of the city is to be collected um, in the town square and devoted to God with fire. Burn it up. Don't take any of it. Near the end of this topic, we read, None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers. And so the second half, first half is the test of the prophet. Second half um, of chapter 13 ends by telling us how to appease the anger of God, anger and emotion of God, by properly handling the physical stuff of a people who have veered away spiritually by worshiping other gods. And so you can see here that these two elements of the spiritual and the physical are coming together in a specific way. And in um, this commandment, especially regarding the idolatrous city, the city is destroyed because of their act of improper worship. And you are to have nothing to do with the spoils, with the, the devoted things, really not spoils, but the devoted things in that city. 
the prophet too is one who is an intercessor, which is like this middle role here of the soul. Well, in the third section of the portion, we are looking for particularly tangible, earthy topics. And we find these topics in chapter 14 to the end of the portion, in chapter, uh, through chapter 16. One, clean and unclean foods. Two, tithes. You can say what you do with your resources. Three, sacred time. A listing of the appointed times starting with the seventh year Shemitah and progressing through the spring and fall festivals. And so, in other words, the topics in this third section deal with keeping the holy vessels of our bodies clean by not putting uncleanness into them, the dedication of our resources to God through our tithes, and the sanctification of time via the Moedim, Right, this physical world being defined especially by space on the one hand and time. And so we see the sanctification of time at the end of this portion here. So again, we see a general movement in the portion from the spiritual to the physical. We're seeing salvation, that's a reflection of the salvation pattern there in this portion. Well, let's move now to thinking about where Re'e fits both Uh, into the flow of the portions and the flow of the calendar. And so we'll start with the Torah portions. Moses has one big task before him as he thinks about Israel going on without him, right? He's going to pass away and they will have to go on. Well, he wants to use the experience of the journey, right? What they've all been through together. Um, this journey that they've taken together through the wilderness to firmly establish that there are two paths to travel in this world, the path of life and the path of death. That's how our portion begins. There's two choices, blessing and curse. And so I think if I maybe had a title for this teaching, it would be the two paths. Really, that's what this portion is all about. It's the beginning thought of the portion. And so the path of life is the way of relationship with God through his word, his commandments, here it says. And the way of death is following other gods, including the God of self, which is ultimately what idolatry is about. So, whereas we worship God and have relationship with him through his word, including the Torah and the commandments, we worship other gods, especially by elevating in our lives the laws of the fallen natural realm, right? So, the two paths have their laws by which you walk, the Torah on the one hand and the natural law on the other. All that we have read in Deuteronomy so far has been making the case that as they journeyed these last 40 years, this is what what Moses keeps coming back to in Deuteronomy up until this point. He's saying, as you have journeyed these last 40 years, when you stayed faithful inwardly to God and walked that out by following his commandments, you had victory, like the victories over Sihon and Og. And we read about those in Parsha Devarim, the first portion of the book. But when they turned away from him in their hearts, 
and put something else in God's place. When they elevated their own intellects, right, what makes sense to them, for example, and their fears above God and his word, or when they allowed their flesh to overtake them such that they elevated other gods, as with the incident of Beth Peor, and that's mentioned in chapter 4. When they got off the good path, they experienced death. And so Moses is making his case by laying out the evidence from their journey, especially emphasizing for them what these people in front of him experienced, this generation that is standing in front of him. And so Moses sort of picks up the story where where they would most remember what was happening in the journey. Well, in the process of making his case, Moses pulls no punches, but uses the opportunity to teach the people to see themselves in the fullness of truth, the full light of truth. Let that shine on you and see what you see there. And he's teaching them how to humble themselves, and he's bringing them down a few notches. So this humbling is among the greatest gifts Moses can give Israel at this point. Moses' stark honesty here won't win him any friends as he reminds them of their missteps in the wilderness. But Moses is not seeking friends at this point. He's putting his reputation aside in order to purchase the chance to humble the nation before he goes home to be with God. Well, all of that in the preceding portions has brought us to Re'e, right? We're doing a review of the portions um, to get us to Re'e to see where it fits into this story. And it gets us to this point of see the two paths I'm laying out here for you, Israel, through your victories, through your mess-ups. In this journey, the one path is blessing, the other path is curse. And Moses uses the verb see here because he's appealing to what they saw, what they walked through personally, what they experienced. He's saying, look back on what you lived through, Israel. So this is not pie in the sky. It doesn't require faith. It's what you actually experienced with God and what you know with certainty. Let's look it over together, see the two paths. Remember, sight is associated with, uh, not really with faith. I see it, and I know it. And so they know what they have gone through, whereas hearing is more the beginning of faith. Um, And so here he emphasizes sight. Remember, and look back on what you experienced. Well, all of this evidence and this summation moment are meant to get the people to admit that the way of God and the way of life and the way of blessing must include the way of Torah. And that's the point Moses wants to get them to before he launches into the detailed review of the Torah commandments. And so he says, we can look back on our history together and we can see that we have to stay close to the Torah. He gets the people to that point of admitting that. And, but he's a good teacher. And he knows that it's one thing for them to recognize that they need the Torah, but it doesn't do them any good if they can't remember what are the actual Torah commandments. And so review is important And good teachers review often because all of us are prone to forgetting. 
Moses demonstrates another good teaching quality in Parsha Va'etchanan when he begins addressing the commandments with a summary, the Ten Commandments. So it's good to begin with the big picture. That's how God begins at Mount Sinai, and that's how Moses begins. Give them the the Sinai view of the matter, and then um, get down to the details. And so here we have them getting into the details. And the people are open now to receiving the Torah with a new sense of immediacy after he's been proving to them the the how important the Torah is for them. And so after that look back at the progression of the portions from Devarim to Re'eh, let's think now in terms of the calendar, and we'll see something similar going on here. Well, starting all the way back at the first month, we've had the early seeds and early work of salvation at Passover, and we've become personally responsible for our relationship with God through the word at Shavuot, that's step two, and we've stumbled with that covenant during the summer. As a result of the journey so far, we have seen ourselves by a new light, that great light of the summer, and we have not only seen ourselves, but we've felt the impact of our wayward heart during the three weeks, and especially on the ninth of Av. And so what did we feel? Well, we felt the separation from the Father, the separation from the Av as the temples are destroyed on Tishba Av. <clears throat> so again, in the calendar, the story has led us to this moment where we are ready to see the two choices in front of us, life and death, blessing and curse. And we are told here to look at those two choices because we're not a newborn now. We've, we've walked this journey now. We're able to see these two paths now as we look behind us. And Moses is saying to Israel, freedom from Egypt, victory in the wilderness, rebellion in the wilderness, birth and death in the wilderness, all of this has brought us now to this place where we can really see the two paths clearly stretching both behind and in front. It's a special moment in the calendar uh, when we have been primed to see the way of life and the way of death. So in truth, the two paths are part of every moment for us. Although we're brought to a special place of seeing it now, it's this choice is part of every moment in our lives. We make life and death decisions all day long as we choose what to dwell on in our minds and how to use our time and how to use our money and our other resources. All of these choices that we make all day long, they're life and death decisions. God is coming to us all day long in hidden ways to to test us. Are we going to make a, a choice for life or death here? And we have to train our eyes to see him coming to us with these tests in all of these moments. We have to We have to see him. He comes wearing gloves, right? We can't see him directly. So he comes in the glove of a child who has needs or questions, constant questions. 
Um, or he comes to us with the glove of a co-worker who wants to share a bit of gossip, right? We have a life and death decision in that moment. Or he comes to uh, us in the glove of a neighbor who could use a bit of help. So each of these moments are God coming to test us. And in each moment, we are given the choice of walking with God or not. Part of our challenge in this life is that we don't see God directly, but only through the faces of others around us and through the stuff of this world and through circumstances. But here Moses says, See, Israel, I place before you a blessing and a curse. He says, See, open your eyes to really see, Israel. It is all God. And each moment with all of it is the chance to see him and walk with him or not see him and walk apart from him. And so we have to remember each one of these moments when sometimes it's just something little. How could I drop that thing? And somehow it bounces off my knee and then it bounces off my toe and it disappears. (laughs) And you think, I couldn't do that again in a million years. But where did that stupid thing go? And, you know, and how many times does that happen? And these little things happen. And somehow you just say, don't get irritated. Don't put yourself in that place of being angry because suddenly the phone's going to ring and you're going to be angry when you pick up the phone. You know? And um, it's just, it's like that all day long, you know. How do those things bounce into the one place where you can't see, you know, it's just over and over again. It's amazing. Well, we can open our eyes in moments to see God in every moment. And we can also open the word in that way and see him in every part of the word. I think that's one of the biggest um, bonuses, one of the biggest um, things I've learned from the the more Torah-centered path is how to read the Word, knowing that every little detail is speaking volumes. It's such a gift. It really just brings you to the Word with awe of what God has written there. And um, he also has timed our reading of certain parts of the Word for certain parts in the year and in the calendar. And that's God's design. And so let me give a suggestion now for reading these portions that are coming, this recitation of the Torah commandments that begins here and continues for the next several weeks in what amounts to hundreds of commandments listed. And so try to see in in this repetition of the commandments what the heart of love is in each commandment. As we approach the outpouring of his grace in the seventh month, with the experience that we've had so far in our journey from the first month, we are more ready than ever to ask for that heart of love and to see... um, to trust that God is giving us. He's preparing us to be able to see in the Torah love and the heart of the Torah. You know, he's primed us to get to this point. And so 
he wants us to ask for that. He wants us to ask for the Torah written on our hearts. He wants us to ask, how do I see love? Show me how I see love here and show me how to walk that out. Put that Torah on my heart. And so let, let this be our kavana. Let this be our, our mindfulness as we read through these next several Torah portions. Lord, help us to see what these commandments look like when they are being done from a heart of love in my life situation. Have mercy on us and forgive us for having fallen short of that love and pour out your mercy on us through your son, Yeshua. Right? Help us to see love in the Torah and to walk that out. Put it on our hearts. Well, I'd like to turn now to looking at the topics Moses chooses to begin his repetition of the Torah with here because his choices are instructive. By placing certain topics first, Moses is making choices for, for what he wants to emphasize, things that he thinks are particularly foundational to the life of the believer. So Grant has taught us that we need to learn to be adamant where the Torah is adamant and vigilant where the Torah speaks a lot, and less so when the Torah does not emphasize something. So, what does Moses put first? Well, the very first instructions here have to do with destroying the Canaanite places of idolatry and proper worship of God, as we mentioned in the summary. Rejection of idolatry and making sure our worship of God is not like the pagan worship are foundational to our walk with God, and this makes sense to us as a first topic. What may surprise us is what Moses chooses for his next topics right here at the beginning of his recitation of the detailed topics of the Torah. And so he moves from proper worship to the food laws, and then to tithes, and then to the seventh year release of debts, and release of servants after six years of service, and then finally the annual Moedim. So what the, the food laws are important enough to come after proper worship of God, to come second. And so we need to talk about that for a minute. One way to look at this is that after Moses addresses the food we bring to God in the form of sacrifices, right, these sacrifices come right here at the beginning of things many times we've seen so far. And so after he's talking about, well, here's how you bring the food offerings to God, he continues by addressing the foods we feed ourselves. But there's more. There's layers here. Food is a daily constant in our lives, and it's in an area, it's an area where we have to constantly keep the flesh in check every time that we don't overindulge and that we eat the right things, for example. Every time we have a victory with food, we gain a little strength spiritually. And every time we lose a battle over food with the flesh, a battle with the flesh, we become a bit weaker spiritually. So food carries a lot of potential for aiding or hindering us in our walk. It is absolutely vital that our diets be holy in every way possible, starting with the kosher laws. It's just absolutely foundational to our walk with the Lord. Well, beyond this great potential that food carries with it, the sages teach that eating unclean foods causes a kind of spiritual fog. 
And you can also hear some rabbis talk about how the foods we eat impart something to, they impart something to us of their nature. A spiritual quality to each food that is beyond the scientist's ability to detect. This is why God effectively forbids the eating of scavengers and predators, animals that live off of death. These animals carry an intangible essence with them that transfers to us if we eat them. And so there's really some truth to the idea that you are what you eat. So we must be careful with the kosher laws, right? If you eat a snake, there is something of the quality of the snake that is being imparted to you, something that science cannot detect. So we have to be very careful here. But even within the foods that God calls clean, um, if an animal is mistreated, for example, its very flesh will carry the mark of that mistreatment in ways that we can't perceive. Now, I think there are some ways that we can perceive you know, certain hormones and certain imbalances in the meat. But I think there are other things that we can't detect. If chickens are raised in an inhumane way, for example, then eating that chicken has a kind of weakening effect on us spiritually. And so with all of these different aspects to how food affects us, just fundamentally, very foundationally, we can see why, in Moses' mind, the food topic is absolutely vital and why he places it second. So moving forward now to the topic of tithes, not one that we talk about a huge amount, at least at Beth Tikkun. Tithes speak to fundamental issues, though, in our walk with God. They speak to trusting God for our own well-being, on the one hand, and this is absolutely fundamental. And on the other hand, the commandment uh, to tithe is a foundation stone for our ultimate purpose here, which involves becoming a channel of God's goodness and light in this dark place, right? Grant says we're to be a pipe and not a bucket, and that's what tithes are about. So God is a giver. If we are to be like him, if we are to live up to the image of him, we must become givers too. That's really not the inclination we are born with. We are tasked, though, with overcoming that inclination. Being commanded to tithe is an important way that we begin learning about being a giver rather than a taker. I understand that many Jewish parents put zadaka boxes in a child's, uh, in a baby's room. Uh, so that from the moment they come home from the hospital, <coughs> from that first moment when they bring them home, tzedakah is being trained into them. And they take their little hands and they put a coin in the tzedakah box as they're little and uh, uh, just to start training them from the various, their eyes are trained by the sight of the tzedakah box in their room. Well, Moses' next uh, topic is the Moedim, God's appointed times. And so again, these are some of the most important topics. They're coming first here. The appointed times are absolutely foundational to how we structure our week and our month and our year. They are the rhythm 
which within which we grow. They're, they're the matrix of time within which we develop, right? Development requires time. That time is structured by the Moedim. And the Moedim are, are, are also the root of how a community comes together to be a community together. Well, of the many laws Moses could have chosen to begin this repetition of the Torah with, he chose these. It's interesting that the church eventually pushed away the diet for one and the moedim for another. They also began to de-emphasize the tithe. And we wonder then why we are weak, right? These foundation pieces are missing, and we wonder why are we weak? These commandments are absolutely vital to walking with God in victory. If we obey his Torah, we will be blessed in our walk with him. But if we reject pieces of his instructions for us, we are going to struggle in that walk, right? All of it is vital. Well, on the topic of the Moedim specifically, I want to bring out one quick idea some of the rabbis talk about regarding the last two verses of the portion. Those verses read like this. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Matzah, at the Feast of Shavuot, or weeks, and at the Feast of Sukkot, or tents. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. Well, the rabbis point out that the verb translated shall appear, the verb yore, literally means shall be seen, shall be seen by God, right? So three times a year, your males shall be seen by God. And so one idea here is that at the Moedim, and particularly these pilgrimage Moedim, we are seen by God. We need to be ready for that inspection, and we need to have in our hands offerings according to how he has blessed us. But the rabbis say the same letters for that word that's translated appear can be read as meaning that we, we shall see God at the Moedim. God sees us at the Moedim, and we see him. Both readings are possible. And so, these are appointments to meet together. Rabbi Trugman talks about how weighty it was for a pilgrim to go to Jerusalem, particularly when the temple was standing and the temple service was going on. He said that thousands would come, maybe even millions, and that even to this day in the prayers, they delay adding the prayer for rain for, uh, until two weeks after Simchat Torah, because in ancient times, the Jewish pilgrims from Babylon, in particularly, needed that extra two weeks to get back to Babylon before the rain set in. So even today, we have the pilgrims in mind, the pilgrims to Jerusalem, the ones from Babylon, and so they could start praying there right at Simchat Torah for rain, but they wait for two extra weeks so that those pilgrims can get back. And Rabbi Trugman says that the Shekinah was palpable 
for these pilgrims who came to Jerusalem. Even today, there is a special presence at the Western Wall, and that was merely a retaining wall for the Temple Mount. And if we can feel it today, what must it have been like when thousands were streaming into Jerusalem, bringing their offerings, and the temple was filled with the holiness of these offerings, and with the music of the, of the Levitical choir, and the smell of the incense that permeated the city, and reached down even to Jericho, the smell of the incense. Rabbi Trugman points out that the same letters for to see here, Yud Resh Aleph He, are used also to spell the word for awe or fear. Seeing God at the temple is an experience of awe for him. And so lastly here, as we bring out some specific topics from the portion, I want to focus on sadaka, charity. Re'eh is called the Parsha of Charity, the Parsha of Sadaka or Tzedakah. Rabbi Trugman lists the following areas that address giving, you know, the topic of giving in the portion. First, the giving of tithes is mentioned, which includes giving to the priests and Levites and to the poor. Um, also includes bringing your offerings at the pilgrimage festivals. Um, then we have the idea of forgiving loans in the Shemitah year. And we also read here how one is to send away a servant with generous gifts when his or her service is complete. All of these having to do with giving. And so listen to the following passages from chapter 15. It says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. This is a promise in the word. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. And it's saying there that don't think that because the Shemitah, the seventh year is coming and you're going to have to release the debt, that you give him less. Loan generously. And so, to be honest with you, all of this is very hard to do for us. Um, Let's go over a few points that the rabbis often discuss here. And so one of the things they say is that tzedakah, tzedakah doesn't quite mean charity. Charity in English is voluntary, right? I could choose to give charity or not. Well, tzedakah is not voluntary. It's required. So there's not quite an English word for this word tzedakah. Rabbi Sachs suggests social justice as coming somewhat close, although that term has come to carry a lot of baggage with it in recent years. And so point number one, tzedakah is required. It, it's not exactly charity. It's a bit more like redistribution, all right? Another word that carries a lot with it here. 
Well, that's what we have here, <laughs> to some degree, to some degree. Um, if we could somehow remove that idea of redistribution from all the political theories um, and look at it in a pure sense, um, in some ways we have that as part of God's plan in the Torah. Well, second, the rabbis understand how difficult it can be for some of us to open our hands to give sadaka, as I said, but maybe partly for this reason, giving charity carries a great power, they, they say, with it. Sadaka is seen as one of the greatest keys to opening the pathway to physical blessing in our own life, right? You want, we'll give. The rabbis say, more than the giver does for the recipient, the recipient does for the giver, meaning that when you give, you might be thinking of the good you are doing for someone, but you should really be thinking about what they are doing for you um, by presenting their need to you and giving you the opportunity to help them. The reward for the giver is great. And for one thing, by putting yourself in a less secure position fi financially, God becomes your financial partner. And there's no better financial partner than the creator of the universe. Rabbi Anava says that God actually gives us beyond the measure we need so that we will have the tzedakah um, to give when the opportunity is presented to us. And so, in other words, God can see what we require. He can see what's good for us and what we need. And if he determines that you need $100, for example, he will give you 115 so that you have $15 to give. And so in that respect, there's a sense that the tzedakah was never really intended for you in the first place. And so hold that lightly. It's just meant to pass through your hands. Well, lastly here on this topic of tzedakah, I love stories about generous people. And I think there's a great power for us in these stories to motivate us to give. And so when I, when I taught a, a financial um, literacy class at, um, at a high school, I liked to give them stories of people who were generous, um, just to add to the curriculum there a little bit, and, and kids will remember these stories. And so I'd like to share a giving story now, and the story was originally told by Eileen Wright, but here it's being retold by someone else. And so this person says, years ago, Eileen's preacher noticed the family standing in front of him at a New Orleans convenience store did not have enough money to pay for their few items. And so he tapped the man on the shoulder and said, you don't need to turn around, but please accept this money. And he passed the money forward. Well, the man, I'm sure he probably breathed deep and took the money without ever seeing the preacher. Well, nine years later, fast forward nine years, the pastor was invited to speak at a church in New Orleans. After the service, a man walked up to the preacher and shared this story about, he about how he had come to faith in the Messiah. Several years ago, he says, my wife and our child were destitute. We had lost everything. We had no jobs, no money, and we were living in our car. We also lost all hope and agreed to a suicide pact 
including our child. However, we decided to first give our son some food. So we drove to a convenience store to buy him some food and milk. While we were standing in line at the store, we realized that we did not have enough money to pay for these items. But a man behind us asked us to please take the money from his hand and not look at him. This man told us that Jesus loves us. Well, we left the store, drove to our designated suicide site, and wept for hours. We couldn't go through with it, so we drove away. As we drove, we noticed a church with a sign out front which said, Jesus loves you. We went to that church the very next Sunday, and both my wife and I were saved that day. He then told the pastor, when you began speaking this morning, I knew immediately that you were the man who gave us that money. How did he know? The pastor was from South Africa, and his very distinct accent um, was the giveaway. He continued, your act of kindness was much more than a simple good deed. Three people are alive today because of it. One of the things this story points out for us is that there's a psychology of poverty that has to be handled carefully by a giver. Rabbi Sachs says that poverty brings a loss of human dignity. So when we give, we need to be aware of this. The halakha stipulates that when you give, says Rabbi Sachs, you give in such a way that you don't humiliate someone. And so we have to be very careful um, of how we give. When the pastor in this story says, just take this and don't turn around, he was helping to preserve the dignity of this couple. This couple that obviously felt so little connection to their inherent human dignity that they thought their lives were worthless, that the world would be better off without them. And so we must try to emulate such people like this pastor in such acts of kindness. Well, lastly here today, let's make a final connection to Yeshua in today's discussion. As Moses launches us off into this repetition of the specific Torah commandments, let's think about one important way Yeshua relates to the Torah. Yeshua is called the Word, the Word made flesh. And so here's the idea for this point today. We relate to God through the Torah, and we relate to God through Yeshua. We relate to God through the Torah. We relate to God through Yeshua. Our goal is relating to the Father through the Son. And so this is important language. And we read just this language in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, which draws some lines of distinction for us. And it says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, 
through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so that's 1 Corinthians 8, 5 to 6. Yeshua always points us not to himself, but to the Father. And it is through Yeshua and through the Torah that we are able to properly relate to the Father. We come from the Father and exist for the Father. We relate to the Father through the Son. And so one point to take from this today is that if we approach the Torah legalistically without the proper heart, we end up breaking the Torah. And, at the, and the same thing is true for the Son. Yeshua reprimands the religious leaders of his time by saying that in their great legalism and in the minutiae of the fences that they had built around the Torah, these, these great weights that they, they would tie up and put on people's backs, they end up stomping all over the weightier parts of the Torah. And this is true of Yeshua too. If we relate to him legalistically, we end up stomping all over him. That is what the religious authorities of Yeshua's time ended up doing to him. They saw him through eyes trained in the letter of the law, but lacking the spirit of the law, which is love. And this led them to insist upon the crucifixion of Yeshua. They saw Yeshua legalistically, and they ended up stomping all over him. And so we have to always keep in mind that the heart of the Torah is love and that the Torah is meant for life. And these ideas must balance us when we start to put up a great many protections for walking out the Torah. And when we are observing others in their Torah walk, we must ask, are these protections bringing life or is this just getting a bit ridiculous and even becoming so unattractive that it pushes others away from Torah observance. And we must take great care when insisting that others abide by offense that mankind has added to the Torah. We must be people of grace. We have to ask, how can I stay true to the Torah, but also show love to others who are walking a bit differently as they also try to follow the Torah with all their hearts? (coughs) So there's much that we can learn by watching how people relate to the Torah, how they relate to the Word, they're going to relate to Yeshua in the same ways. And so here we're looking at how people relate to the Torah legalistically and how people can do that as well with Yeshua. In fact, it was the same people who were relating legalistically to the Torah that related legalistically to Yeshua. And in both cases, you end up walking all over both the Torah and Yeshua, or worse. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. Uh, Once again, I posted a link to an outline of this teaching below the video. May God make us a people who often pause to see the two paths and to examine whether our choices are leading to life or to death. May we be a people who know how to emphasize what God emphasizes, May we be a people who give generously. And may we rise up to be the people he has made us to be. Shalom.